Acts chapter 14. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to dive right in. Jesus, we thank you that one of the most precious privileges you've given humanity is to be confronted with your written word. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you change us. You don't intend for us to move into mere obedience except through the cross of Christ where we are able to repent of our idolatries and we are able with fresh insight to cling to the cross for we see at the cross how beautiful and believable you are. So Father, I pray that you will move in our hearts that you'll change us by the power of your spirit. Lord, I thank you for how many birthdays there were in our church this week. I thank you for every one of them. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us as our... um, uh, as the days go by, to treasure your work in our life. Lord, I pray for those of us who are um, nearing big turning points in our family, especially for those mamas who are pregnant, I pray that you'll protect them in these last days before the arrival of their baby. Would you be with them? Would you guide them? Would you give them peace? I pray, Lord, that you'll clear the traffic and you'll make all the lights turn green. And I pray that you'll give um, uh, Stacy and Ryan, your peace, especially as they await Gunner. But I thank you for stories in our life this week that um, families are being reconciled, hard conversations are being had, and um, Lord, I pray that you'll help us, even though it's scary, to be able to walk in obedience and to walk in truth and honesty, and I pray that you will continue to superintend those conversations. Lord, many of us have friends that are really struggling um, over sin issues, And we are um, encouragers to them, and I pray that you'll strengthen us to have the words to say, because oftentimes we don't. We don't know what to say. But Lord, I pray that our friends who are struggling with sin will continue to struggle, and they won't give in. And you'll help us to be an encouragement to them, because we don't give in to our sin either. We struggle over it, and we do it together. Lord, I thank you for every person that's here. Worship matters. And being in the same room, hearing the same voice, looking at the same faces is important because worship shapes us. And so, Father, I pray that in the minutes we have together that you would continue to shape us. Lord, I pray for the future of our church and where we're going to meet. Lord, I cry out to you that you'll provide for us a building. You know exactly where we're going to be. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll begin to open up those doors for us even now. I thank you for Trinity Grove and the core group that's forming out there and for the brothers and sisters who came in um, 80 minutes to have worship with us this morning. I pray you'll bless them as well. Lord, I pray for those who are sick at home that you'll protect them and keep them safe. Lord, in all these things, we lift our eyes up to the hills because where does our help come from? And we say that our help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. You will not let our foot slip. You are our shade. The sun will not harm us by day or the moon by night. You will watch over us. Thank you, Lord Christ, that you watch over our comings and our goings from this point forward and forevermore. And so we pray that you'll take us now and mold us into your image in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Brandon comes up to read, I've got a confession to make. When I was growing up, there were, um, somebody once told me there were two kinds of people there are scientists and there are artists. You ever heard this? There are people who are scientists, people who love logic, people who use experiments to isolate certain variables to know something very, very well. 
They're the ones who master how to do something again and again and again. If you're a scientist, you have to do experiments, and so you have to be able to do that experiment perfectly again, just the same way. And you love knowledge, and you love to know how stuff works. And then there are people who are artists, and oftentimes they're either best of friends or worst of enemies, scientists and artists. And the, the artist is the one who doesn't go through you know, logic. He operates by intuition, right? I feel my way through it. And so instead of having experiments where you isolate certain variables, you have experiences where you move into certain changing environments. And as you grow, you find yourself fluctuating between um, being a scientist or an artist. Here's the point. For most of my life, I've been a scientist. That is, that I wanted to know exactly how something worked. And so when I became a Christian, I don't know if it was this way with you, like I wanted to know how the gospel worked. And I wanted to put it in a little can, and I wanted to seal it up tight, and I wanted to be able to open that can for whoever needed to hear it. And so it didn't matter if you're from Timbuktu or you're from Tahlequah. You got the same message, the same gospel. Here it is. Here are the five points you need to know. And it was extremely helpful to me to have it contained in that little can. But as you're going to see in the text today, sometimes the Lord forces us to articulate the gospel not as scientists, but as artists. Because not everybody is made the same way. And there are seven billion variables in how you present the gospel to different people. And in this text today, Paul shows us, Luke shows us through the, Paul, the Apostle Paul's ministry, a very clear contrast between Paul, the scientist presenting the gospel, and Paul, the artist moving into a pagan area who had no categories for the gospel. And it's beautiful to watch his tapestry. So give your attention to God's word as Brandon reads for us. Uh, verse 8, uh, now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Uh, he was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. Uh, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Uh, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, 
For he did good by giving you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So we're in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, of course, is not merely the acts of the apostles, but it's the acts of Jesus continuing to do his work through the apostles by the power of his Holy Spirit, right? And the book of Acts essentially is a book of how to find joy. It's about joy, resurrection and joy. Those are the two things that Paul, I mean, that Luke comes back to again and again and again. And the question for us, are you with me? Are you, are you with me? The question for us is, how do you get the same kind of joy that the early church had? Don't you want that kind of joy? Like, don't you really want to be part of a movement where the gospel is exploding and expanding so fast? And what's interesting is that when Paul would go into an area, where did he go first? He always went to the synagogue, didn't he? Why did he go to the synagogue? Because he knew that just like in Owasso, Oklahoma, the greatest deterrent and the greatest obstacle to people believing in Jesus Christ, the greatest obstacle to the righteousness of God is the righteousness of men. Like the reason why you don't have more joy in your life if you're like me is because we think we've got it figured out. And if you're like me, then you can go days where you wonder, do I even really need the gospel of grace? What am I doing proclaiming to be a believer when I operate as though I have a totally different worldview in my life? Paul shows us the power of joy, takes him to very, very difficult places, and he wants to keep the gospel central. And here's the point of the passage. Lystra, Lystra was a backwoods city. It was a place that was about um, 100 miles southeast um, of Antioch of Pisidia. And here Paul is in Acts chapter 13, like you saw last week, in a city of Iconium, a great agricultural center, and he's preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. And all of a sudden, these Jews are so offended that Paul is using their connection points, their love for the history and for the Torah, for the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Paul spends seven verses talking about Old Testament history, and then he spends 19 talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies that they grew up believing And they are so mad at him, they run him out of town. And he and Barnabas go to these small, out-of-the-way, backwoods cities called Lystra and Derbe. And when he gets to Lystra, he finds that they speak Lyconian. They don't speak his language. And they find that they are probably illiterate. They're pagans. And he finds himself in a very, very interesting and difficult situation. And that he's got to learn how to communicate the gospel to people even that are illiterate pagans like the ones that were found in Lystra. How does he do it? Here's the point of the passage. When you share the gospel with people, you have a fixed theology, but you have a flexible methodology. You have a fixed theology, but you have a flexible methodology. What do I mean? As I mentioned earlier, we're all either scientists or artists in our own natural disposition, aren't we? And many of us who are the science type, right? My undergrad in A&M was in a science, right? We, we want to have things figured out and we want to present it the same way again and again and again. Kiddos, you know what this is like. Like, you want to be able to have the right answer at every stage of the test. And sometimes you get an essay question. 
that doesn't ask you a multiple choice question. And you have to learn how to think on your feet all of a sudden. And that's what Paul found himself doing here. Paul was a man who had every box checked in the Jewish faith. And when Jesus came into his life, it blew open his categories. And he moved from being a scientist to being able to move into being an artist very, very carefully and very, very easily. When Paul comes to Lystra, he finds that he's in an area where they had um, worshipped two gods. From the context of what Brandon read, who do you think those two gods were? Who do you think the gods of Lystra were? What does your text say? Zeus and Hermes. In fact, Ovid, 50 years before that, had written Metamorphosis, which was a text, a legend, about how two gods, Zeus and Hermes, came to Phrygia, and they sought hospitality. And they go to house to house to house. And the legend goes in Metamorphosis that they were rejected a thousand times. Until you have these two pe this peasant couple, Philemon and Bacchus, who take in Zeus and Hermes, and out of their poverty, they entertain them, and they host them, and they provide for them in this little, you know, little plywood house with a thatched roof, and they're getting rained on, and they, but they're loving these two visitors. And so Zeus and Hermes reward Philemon and Bacchus. But the other thousand people who reject them, they destroy in a flood. And this, this storyline, right, it's not in the New Testament, but it's alluded to here. This storyline, this story that Ovid wrote was known by the people of Lystra. They knew it. But Paul and Barnabas didn't know they didn't probably know about that story at all. They didn't even know what they were saying because it's not until they pull out the sacrifices and they meet them at the gates of the temple that Paul realizes what's happening. There are areas near Lystra today where you'll find a stone sculpture that is in honor of Zeus and Hermes. And there are inscriptions that you can look up that are historically verifiable that this area worshipped those two gods. And so here's Paul who just spent time with people in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13 presenting the gospel to them. And he does so by using the Old Testament scriptures and defending vehemently the centrality of Jesus in all of the Old Testament. And then he finds himself in a backwoods area known as Lystra and Derby. And Paul has to use a completely different tactic for how to communicate the gospel. He's got a fixed theology, but he's got a flexible methodology. So what I want us to look at this morning is the context that Paul finds him in. The content of what he presents and the connection points that you and I have to learn how to do as believers in this area if we're going to learn how to share the gospel effectively. All right? This sounds like a how-to sermon. In some ways it is. Don't be alarmed by that. It's okay to learn really practical things. But ultimately, of course, we know that that's only possible because of the work of Jesus in our hearts. How many of you have ever had somebody um, share the gospel with you? Raise your hand. All right? How many of you have ever gone to Beach Reach? Ever gone to the beach to share the gospel? Maybe, yeah, I see those hands. Yes. So I grew up going to the beach to share the gospel. It was a tremendous way to help you get over your fears of sharing the gospel with strangers. It was. It was a tremendous help for that. But one of the things we learned when we would share the gospel in that way is that we would learn how to share the gospel by having a very clear presentation that we applied to everybody there. 
And my first experience at Beach Reach, I walked up to somebody to share the gospel with them, and I had my five points, and I had it all memorized, and I was nervous, right? It was really more about me than it was that person, as sometimes it can often be. And all of a sudden, this guy was, <laughs> he was um, not only a non-Christian, he was a Buddhist who dabbled in Hinduism and went to an LDS church. And I remember uh, talking to this guy, and none of the points that I had to make had any connection with him at all. Because he discarded the notion of truth because he was Buddhist, right? And yet he didn't believe the same thing about Jesus because he was LDS. He was Mormon. And I really didn't, I had no idea. And so I found that my little canned five, you know, point presentation didn't get me very far. Except to make me feel foolish in this guy to just see right through the veneer of what I was trying to do. Why? Because when you share the gospel with people, You've got to have a point of connection with them. And sometimes, sometimes when we want to share the gospel with people, we sometimes rush to be relevant so fast. You have no real point of connection. There's no real relationship. There's no real trust that's ever being built. Or on the other hand, sometimes you want to have connection, and so you want to enjoy relationships. You want to invest your time into them, but you never actually get to a point of relevance when you can actually talk about the gospel. Paul here in this passage, notice what he does. He has a point of connection and he has a point of relevance. Look at what the text says. It says, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He had a congenital birth defect. He couldn't walk. He was crippled from birth. And he listened to Paul speaking. Paul was presenting the gospel, talking about the resurrection. And Paul, looking intently at him, and saying in a loud voice, which by the way is the same thing that Zeus and Hermes did in the metamorphosis. That's why they thought they were gods. The stare and the voice, that's what set them off as gods before the, the, uh, those at Lystra. He said, stand on your feet. And the man began to sprang, he sprang up and he began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Here Paul is in a totally illiterate society. He's beginning to speak. This man who understands Paul's language, but the rest of them probably don't, responds to the gospel. And Paul heals him. He heals him because he realizes that, look, I've got one person in ten who understands what I'm saying. And so Paul heals this man in order to confirm the word of the Lord, which is always how miracles work, by the way, in the New Testament. Every sign and wonder you see done is confirming God's revealed word. It's never the other way around. Miracles confirm what's being preached. They never stand off by themselves. And so Paul makes a connection with these people however he can. He can't use the Old Testament because they don't know it. So he heals him physically as an apostle by the power of the Holy Spirit. And immediately he has a sense of connection. The guys can relate to him. He's speaking their language. He's not talking about Ovid's metamorphosis or the Old Testament. He's showing through natural revelation the power of God moving in a special way by healing this person. And then Paul doesn't stop there. Then what does Paul do? Paul immediately has to think on his feet, doesn't he? Because here these people are. 
who are starting to bring out things in order to offer sacrifices to Paul and to Barnabas. And Paul is like, when he sees what they're doing, he makes the connection, and he doesn't know the background of the story of Zeus and Hermes, but he sees that he's being worshipped, and Paul freaks out. And so he doesn't, say, he doesn't just say, look, guys, you shouldn't be doing this. It says he rents his clothing. Why does he tear his clothes? Because it's a universal sign for grief. Like, he's the cross-cultural missionary at the moment, doing whatever he can to get their attention. And so, what do you do if you're in a foreign land and you're trying to get... He ripped his clothes because he's grieving before them. He's trying everything he can to communicate the gospel. And he calls them, no, no, no. What you're doing is wrong. Don't sacrifice to me. I'm a man literally of like passions just like you. Instead, you should turn from your idolatries to the living God. All right, here's the upshot of the application. I said last week that most of you, and many times I, am scared to death of sharing the gospel with other people because you're afraid of people rejecting you. Or if you're really honest, you're, you just don't want to share the gospel because you just think you're better. But here's Paul, who in chapter 13 of the book of Acts uses the Old Testament to very clearly explain the gospel. He uses scripture and history and prophecy. Paul the scientist, if you will. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 14, here Paul is usually in the natural world and he's using natural revelation, which means the things that you can see and taste and touch about the world to know that there's a God and he exists. Paul is incredibly lucid in the way he moves, if you will, from being a scientist to an artist. And the more and more you can move in your own relationships with people, from being a scientist to an artist, the more and more effective in evangelism you're going to be. What do I mean? If you, if you have that gray card that was in your bulletin, if you'd grab that and have it before you, that would be helpful. We want to share the gospel in a thousand ways throughout our services. And one of the helpful ways is to show people that the gospel is historical truth rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it's also a worldview that explains how the world gets put back to rights. And the more you can understand the gospel as a worldview, that you can see that we were created for good, that we were destroyed by sin. But in Jesus Christ, God didn't leave us on our own, but in Christ we are redeemed for the better. And we are brought together in the church and sent out to heal the brokenness of the world so that one day we can enjoy him together forever in a, in a renewed world, renewed heavens and renewed earth. And the more you understand that, the more natural and effective you're going to be at being able to communicate the gospel. In other words, the more that you understand the storyline of Scripture, the more you're able to apply it into a thousand different contexts. And listen, this is so important. Because you're here this morning because you believe you're defined by a historical act. And it shapes everything about your life. And if that's true, you should be able to find a thousand different ways to connect that with your children. Because you may not have anybody who lives in Lister or Derby, but you've got people who are illiterate probably if you're a mom or a dad in your house. 
And you have to figure out ways to be creative in the way you communicate the gospel. And if you are just dead set on saying, you know, God, man, sin, Christ, faith, yes, that is the content. But you have to be creative in how you present that. And so you have to use points of relevance in the people's lives to whom you're speaking in order to effectively communicate that. Paul is an absolute master of this. And that's what he shows us in the book of Acts. And Luke is trying to go to great lengths to show Theophilus that Paul is a master missionary because he can move so smoothly from the religious subculture to the irreligious subculture. And at Owasso, you have to be able to do that too because you frankly don't know what you're going to get because those two things are so closely intertwined. In Acts 13, Paul calls them to turn from their self-righteousness. And in Acts 14, what does he call them to turn from? Their idolatries. The witness of Acts 13 was that there's prophecy that's fulfilled in Christ. What's the witness in Acts 14? The kindness of God by sending rains from heaven and fruitful seasons to satisfy your hearts. You have the creator, the covenant God in Acts 13. Jesus is the Messiah. And you just have the creator God in Acts chapter 14 because these people had no category to understand anything that was revealed to the Jewish nation. Paul has to back way up to just present the Lord, the creator God, in order to have a sense of connection with these people. The application for us this morning is simply this. If you find yourself to be somebody who's got to have all your ducks in a row, then evangelism is going to be horrifying for you because there are seven billion variables out there. But if you're somebody who understands the word well enough to know that God created the world beautiful and good, and yet mankind fell, all of us fell because of Adam's sin. And not only do we sin, but we are sinful. But God didn't leave us on our own, but he sent Christ, the perfect God-man, to come and stand in our stead so that we might, by the grace of God, be brought back together and made whole completely, psychologically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, one day physically. And now we live between the times, between the already and the not yet. And the more you're able to do that with people who are agnostic or anarchists, people who are uh, religious, people who claim to be believers but don't know the gospel, listen, the more effective you're going to be. Because one of the greatest tragedies, I think, in the South these days, in Oklahoma, is that everybody claims to be a Christian. Because you have to, don't you? If you're, a real, if you're in real estate in this town and you don't go to church, you will not be a very successful realtor. In, in New York, if you're a real estate a realtor and you go to church, you won't be a very successful realtor. But our context is so very different. And so you've got to learn how to build trust with people like Paul does by healing this man and then by helping communicate to them in a way that was effective, that they got. He has to not only build trust with them, but eventually he has to come to the point where he's able to have a point of relevance. These guys wanted to be able to have um, in Lystra uh, organized agricultural life 
And Paul says, look, the reason why you have an organized agricultural life is because there's one who created you. And we know that he didn't just stop at the creator God, that he went and eventually talked about Jesus. You know that from the context, because if you keep reading, the Jews who chased him down into Lystra and Derby wanted to stone him, and they convinced all of those in Lystra to do the same. So you know Paul went beyond just talking about God as a creator to talk about God as the one, the only one in whom you can find your salvation. We've got to be like that. And the good news is you can't. You can't. No matter how effective your evangelistic methods may be, unless you're first able to walk in repentance. Because we sometimes, in our desire to try to be an encouragement to other people and share the gospel, we just run over them. We've got to be a people who build trust with each other. We've got to be people who know how to love people who have no exposure to the church whatsoever in this town. We've got to be people who invite other people because we're, love, we're with them. Who are you with, non-believers? Now think about your week this week. How many hours, if any, did you spend with people who didn't know the Lord? And this is not a guilt trip. This is just trying to be practical. And for many of us, you know, we, 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 really, we, really, we don't spend much time with unbelievers. And for some of us, that's just a season of life, and that is totally fine. But others of us don't spend time with believers, but we'd like to be better evangelists, and we wonder why we're not more effective. It's because your schedule doesn't allow for it. And you've got to fight to make that happen. Church plants will stay the same size, even shrink, unless the core group of that church plant desires to share the best news in all the world with other people. And that means that you're going to have to risk not being liked by other people. And that means that you're going to have to die, perhaps, to this tendency to think that, well, you know, somebody else will share the gospel with them. You know, it, you're too important for that. No, they won't. And the way that you are able to risk your reputation and you're able to risk being part of a church plant, the way that you're able to risk being aggressive in your evangelism is by knowing the gospel so well because you've been humbled that God would love you like he does. Because as I said, you don't get 15 minutes of fame as a Christian. You get 15 billion years of it. And he loves you. And some of you this morning need to know that we have a fixed theology. It's fixed in a person in Jesus Christ who's at the Father's right hand and who loves us and he woos us even this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. But you also need to know that he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay the way you are. And he wants to help you recognize that the more and more that you can be both a scientist and an artist, both somebody who understands the content of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, but also has an infinite number of ways to share it with other people. That takes practice. And it's so important for us to do it because moms and dads, you're gonna be forced to do it because your children are gonna have a thousand different, they're gonna give you a thousand different opportunities to do so. Those of you who work, if you share the gospel at work, if you just straight up bring your Bible, put it on your desk and start sharing it, you're probably going to be fired. Does that mean you leave your Christianity at home? No. It may mean you make the company for whom you work as much money as you can by being the best employee they've ever had. And it may mean that you build trust 
so that when somebody who works with you's parents pass away one day, you're the one they talk to. And that opportunity to open up avenues to understand the brokenness of the world begins to make sense. Friends, I long to be somebody who's able to fluidly move into different conversations to share the gospel effectively. And I'm, and I'm working on it. And I want you to work on it with me. Because we are a people who are loved by Jesus Christ. And he has put us right smack dab in the middle of the greatest work of missions ever, the book of Acts. And he has helped us to personalize that by planting a church in an area like Owasso that is so overchurched that it's under-gospeled. And we've got to be a people who are able to effectively communicate that together. And one of the best ways we do that, one of the best ways we can possibly do that is by providing a point of relevance in this city and that is a point of community. And by being a community together. A place where guys can be known. A place where ladies can be known. A place where we run out of small group handouts like we did today. where People want to be in community group. A place where people are known and people are loved. Let's do that together, shall we? Let's prepare to repent of our self-righteousness and of our self-absorption and of our fear of talking to people who are different than us. And let's tell our story however we are able, either as scientists with a very clear-cut, logical presentation of the gospel or by ripping your clothes to get the point across that we need to be people who repent of our self-righteousness and of our idolatry, whatever we need to do in order to, order to most effectively communicate the gospel. Deal? Let's come in faith and repentance as we prepare for the supper this morning. And let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you would show yourself to us in a way that was unique just to us. You don't just have one canned presentation of the gospel. There's a fixed theology, but every one of us, you came to us differently. Some of us through our families, some of us through a tragedy, some of us through a church service. So I pray you'll help us to reflect upon the way you opened our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you will put one person on our mind, one person that we need to move toward and share the gospel with. Lord, help us, each of us, to be church planters and to do it together and to coach each other well in talking about the gospel as effectively as we know how. And Jesus, we pray you'll help us to do this because you love us and you accept us and you cherish us and you invite us now to commune with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.